and welcome to Exploring the Blank Page, a podcast for readers and writers of young adult fiction. I'm host Emily Hendricks, writer of YA sci-fi and fantasy, and my co-host is Kristen Crum, author of the YA rom-com It Happened at Christmas. The Blank Page is where we all start, published or not, and we're excited to share stories that inspire your writing or influence your next book choice. Now let's get to the episode. Today's author is the daughter of a preacher who read Tolkien and Lewis aloud to his children. She grew up daydreaming about Narnia and Middle Earth, watching Doctor Who from behind the sofa, and hanging out in her brother's comic book shop. Now she writes novels about knife-wielding fairies, weird science, and the numinous world in the modern world. Her debut novel, Knife, was a UK bestseller and has sold more than 120,000 copies worldwide. Her teen thriller, Ultraviolet, was shortlisted for the 2012 Nebula Awards and the Sunburst Award for Canadian Science Fiction and was followed by the companion novel Quicksilver. She has also written two magical middle grade mysteries, the Silver Birch Award shortlisted A Pocket Full of Murder and its sequel A Little Taste of Poison. Her latest work is the Flight in Flame trilogy consisting of Swiss coming August 2020, Nomad November 2020, and Torch February 2021. Please welcome R.J. Anderson. Yay, welcome. Yay, hi. Nice to be here. <laughs> um, so we'd love to start off by asking you to share a little bit about yourself and your publishing journey so far. I started writing at the age of eight years old. Um, I was such an avid reader that I think it just seemed natural to me to write stories as well. Like no one ever told me it was work. Um, so I, I just started writing stories for my own pleasure, um, at the age of eight. Um, they were very self insert kind of fantasy stories of me and my magical talking cats who lived in an underground palace and going on adventures and so on. And it, it was just for me, it was not even with an audience in mind. It was just because I wanted to hear these stories and no one else was going to tell them of me. So um, as I got a little older, I, it suddenly like dawned on me that, hey, it would be really cool to write a book that would actually be read by other people for, for a change. Um, and I, I had this you know, great ambitious idea that I was going to sit down and write a fantasy novel and be a prodigy and all that stuff, you know, get published in my teens and, you know, people would be like, wow. Um, so I started, I sat down at like the age of 12 to write my first novel and I got like three chapters in, lost interest, had no idea where the book was going and it died the death. So, um, <laughs> but I mean, I certainly didn't lose the storytelling bug. Um, by that time I discovered fan fiction. And so I thought I'd invented it. I thought I was like super clever that I was the only person in the universe who'd ever thought of writing like stories about their favorite TV shows and characters. So, um, yeah, I wrote fanfic for my favorite shows and I shared it with my friends and they seemed to actually like it. And I was like, wow, you know, like maybe I can write, like maybe I could get published someday. Um, so I kind of like alternated, I bounced back and forth between fanfic and my original sort of short stories and so on that I was playing with through my teens. And then at 19, I finally completed my first manuscript. It was like a science fantasy epic first in a trilogy, 120,000 words. Oh, wow. And it was absolutely terrible. Like it was so bad. <laughs> I was very proud of it though. And, um, you know, it's a big deal to finish your, you know, your first novel. So, uh, I remember taking it to uh, a very respectable literary author who was then like the writer resident, writer in, writer in residence at, uh, the university that was near me. And, um, 
he kind of looked through it and he marked up one chapter for me and then he brought me in for an interview. And uh, I remember him saying to me, like, your ideas are delightful, but you're killing it with all these words. <laughs> I, guess I, was a, I was very purple prose kind of writer. Um, anyway, he was very kind to me because like I said, it was it was terrible. Um, so I, I submitted it to a couple of places and they gave me very form rejections like very form, like dear author, this book does not meet our present <laughs> needs, which is what they say to you when they really mean like, this is terrible. Please don't send us anymore. Um, so anyway, it, it did eventually dawn on me that that was not going to be the book that, you know, made me a superstar. And by this time I was kind of past the point of being a prodigy. I was like in my early twenties, but, um, I'd had this idea kind of knocking around my brain since I was 16, um, about, uh, a fairy. Um, who was kind of a tough, adventurous fighter, hunter, and so on. And her getting involved with a boy who had a disability and was very isolated and and so on. And, and I kind of had this idea that, you know, maybe I'll, I'll write someday. Well, finally, I decided to sit down and write it. And I wrote the first draft of, of what would eventually become my debut novel. But it took me a very, very long time to figure out how to take my story from the level of readable to publishable. Um, I was always good at spelling and grammar. You know, my my storytelling as far as just the prose went was fine, but it didn't have that that spark, that edge that it needed. And, and really what made the difference for me, um, was getting some very good in-depth critical feedback from somebody who knew what they were talking about, um, and massively rewriting the story, um, twice actually, um, <laughs> to incorporate all of the suggestions they made. Like, you know, your character should probably have an arc. <laughs> like instead of just being this character who's like right at the beginning and then the whole story is like everyone having to learn that she's right. And then at the end they say, <laughs> you're right. And everybody goes, yay, she was right. Um, you know, that was the first draft. So yeah, I did a lot of revision. And by the time I figured all this out, um, I was like in my mid thirties and married and had kids. So, you know, it took me like 15 years to take that book from first draft to actually something that an agent and then a publisher would, would want. Um, but that did become my debut novel and then it ended up being, you know, a big success in the UK. And, and fortunately the books that I wrote afterwards did not take me 15 years to figure out. <laughs> Progress, right? Progress. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, speaking of upcoming releases, you have quite a few that are coming out one after the other. <laughs> yeah, it's fast. This has never happened to me before. I mean, I'm not a fast writer. I'm not one of these, you know, two books a year or even really a I mean, I, I have been a one book a year writer, but that was like pushing myself to burnout. Um, yeah. I'm really like naturally more of an 18 months to two years kind of book writer. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but in this case, um, I had two of the books already written, um, and they had been previously published in the UK only and nowhere else. So not a lot of people had read them and, um, those who had read them were really keen on getting the third book in that trilogy. And so was I, but my publisher in the UK was kind of, eh, 
you know, so it, yeah. it hadn't really happened. Um, but then when I got the rights back and had the chance to, to sell them to Enclave, mm-hmm. um, I was, uh, able to finally write that third book. And, um, <laughs> I'm so thankful for my patient fans. I actually emailed a bunch of them recently cause I was getting emails like maybe, you know, every month or two months from people going, so is there ever going to be a third book? <laughs> and I'm like, hey, you guys are amazing. You've been waiting since like 2014 for this. Um, so then I emailed a bunch of them and was like, you know, that third book that I told you was probably not coming. It's coming. And, and they were all so sweet. They all wrote back. They're like, I mean, they're in like university now and they're all like, this is great. I'm so excited. <laughs> So is it, is it intimidating at all to have three books come out that quick? I've never done it before. So I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the first book hasn't come out yet. Right. So I've just been treating it like a normal launch so Mm -hmm. far, um, more or less, um, just concentrating on getting that first book. Obviously that's the one that you want people to get hooked on. And then hopefully they'll want to read the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's going to be great from the point of view of people coming into the series for the first time. They don't have to wait more than three months for book two and then another three months for book three. So there isn't that phenomenon where, you know, you read a book and then you really, maybe you really loved it. And then by the time the next book comes out, you're like, so, um, (laughs) what happened in book one? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So I'm kind of like excited about the potential of that. Um, Mm -hmm. that that it'll be closer together and people will hopefully, Mm -hmm. you know, get more out of the trilogy that way. Yeah. Um, Well, we just got our copies, so we will be reading soon, um, which we're very excited about. But I noticed something, and I did a little research on Goodreads, that, and you just mentioned, too, that your first book um, dealt with disability. And then I saw that you had mentioned Swift deals with uh, disability and prejudice and then the clash of cultures. So to me, it sounds like there's a story there or there's something in your heart. And I'm just curious what that is, (laughs) if you want to share a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, I was trying to think back to myself, like, why is it that disability is a thing that is so close to my heart? And there's a bunch of reasons. Um, one is that all my life, I was aware that my dad had had polio when he was a young man and it took away the muscle in his upper leg. And so he always walked with not even necessarily a limp because he had worked really hard to keep it exercised. He didn't need a cane or anything, but he kind of walked with like a snap in his leg. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of walked like, I don't know if you've ever seen Tintin, the way he walks, you know, it's just like <laughs> in the comics, my dad walked like Tintin. Um, so, so because of that, and, and because I have a brother that was affected by, um, some medication that my mom took for morning sickness when he was young. And again, it was like a small disability. Um, he was missing fingernails and toenails and stuff, but you know, it's just one of these things that just sort of was in my mind. And then also at a very young age, I remember being taken to seeing the movie Johnny about Johnny Erickson, okay, who broke yeah. her neck in a diving mm-hmm. accident when she was 16 and became a quadriplegic and how this transformed her entire life in so many ways. And so that made a big impact on me as a kid. And then a little later on in my teens, I read Madeline Lengel's um, uh, A Wrinkle in Time, A Wind in the Door, and A Swiftly Tilting Planet. And in A Swiftly Tilting Planet, my favorite character was Matthew Maddox, who is a young, brilliant young man in a wheelchair. Um, and not to, not to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it, but I was not entirely satisfied with the way his story played out. And I don't think Madeline Lengel meant to be in any way... Um, 
uh, ableist, but it was sort of a very traditional sort of, you know, where the, the character in the wheelchair is kind of tragic and he can never have a full life because he's in a wheelchair. So he kind of has to watch the world go by. Um, and I was like, no, he doesn't. <laughs> I'm going to write a book where the guy in the wheelchair is the handsome love interest yes. who gets the girl and lives. <laughs> I love it. That's great. That's yeah. Great. So, you know, that just is something that I've, I've always been kind of conscious of that disability is not well represented in a lot of literature and especially fantasy literature, that a lot of people with disabilities are excluded from the narrative or worse, killed off by the narrative to be sort of tragic and pitiable. And I'm like, no. (laughs) So um, yeah, that's something that just keeps coming up in my books because there's different kinds of disability and there's, Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of ways that we can incorporate people with disabilities into our stories. Um, So that's just something that's close to my heart. That's great. I love that. Um, so we are curious, who was your favorite character to write? Well, obviously, you know, the first book is coming out, so we're not going to know about anybody in the, in the next two, but who did you maybe connect with the most or maybe enjoy the most in writing? Um, yeah, it's kind of hard to answer that with I know. It's just a, I know, yeah. just a little bit. There, are, a little there are characters, I will tell you, there are characters in the series that have appeared in previous books that I've written. So um, uh, the heroine and her family and friends that we originally meet in the book, they are brand new characters to this trilogy and it's told from their point of view. So you don't have to have read any of my earlier books to get what's going on because you're seeing the narrative through their eyes. Mm -hmm. But as the books go on, we meet more and more characters Mm -hmm. that were in my previous No Ordinary Fairy Tale trilogy. And um, some of those, um, uh, one in particular is a character who is very forthright and uh, just says what's on her mind. And um, she is always great fun to write. Um, And then there's another one who's a character that originally started out as a just he was supposed to be just a two-bit thug in one scene have like a couple of lines and disappear and then he he did and then he showed up again at the end of the book and he had kind of a wry sense of humor and there was kind of a hint that he might be more complicated than he seemed and I'm like oh no (laughs) there's more here there's more here um and then he just took over the whole series so So I he's, love it. He's, he's a lot of fun to write too. Mm-hmm. And he's got kind of a very long character arc that extends over the whole. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so fun. Well, we look forward to finding that out. And by the time yeah. it airs too, I think that at least one of the books will be launched already. So yes. we'll be able to go yeah. out and grab that immediately. Um, so with the name of our podcast, Exploring the Blank Page, we like to ask writers a little bit about uh, how they go from that blank page, whether it's paper or maybe a blinking cursor on that white page, um, how they start their process and maybe some things that they found that, I don't know, kind of get them the, the kick in the pants they need to, to write or to plot or whatever it is that they do. So maybe just share a little bit about your process. Yeah. Um, for me, it usually starts with a character, um, in a situation, and finding their name. Um, for me, the names of characters are really important to, to getting a handle on who that character is. Um, so I look very hard to find the right name for my characters before I, I can feel confident um, mm-hmm. about writing them. Um, 
but yeah, I generally have a sense of kind of the world that this is taking place in, whether it's um, sort of a in our world, but with an added layer of magic or sort of a hidden magical mm-hmm dimension to it um or whether it's like an alternate world um as in my pocket full of murder series it's an alternate universe toronto basically mm-hmm. in the 1930s with magic so fun. Um, <laughs> yeah and then the, the one that i'm working on right now is a a true secondary world high fantasy which i have not written before um I, everything else that i've written has basically been set in our world or, or very very similar to our world um so i find the first draft is always a challenge for me. Um, I, I, you know, <laughs> I hear about other writers who are just like so excited to start that first draft and plunge in and just write tons of words. <laughs> and I'm just like, eat, eat, eat. You know, <laughs> like just eking the words out like a mouse um, for the first, you know, 10,000, 15,000 words until I feel like I've got a handle on the world and what's happening in it. So I'm at that stage right now in my work in progress. Um, and it's not fun and I don't love it. Um, what keeps me going is knowing that there will come a time when I do have a first draft that I can actually go back and make better and, you know, feel more confident about, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, there are days when the words don't come today was such a a day. Um, I was aware that I had a lot going on today. Um, and for whatever reason, I only managed to get out like, 200 words. Um, and, and that's it. I'm done. Um, but I know that tomorrow will be different and hopefully better. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and previous days have been definitely different and definitely better. So I just kind of have to take it day by day and not get too discouraged that I didn't make my goal or my Mm -hmm. hopes for that day. Um, setting a, like a, a general word count, um, helps me, but I, I try not to demand too much of myself that I'm going to fail on a regular basis. So, um, until I get really rolling with a novel, I would keep my word target for the day, probably around 500 words. Cause I'm a slow writer. Um, and then once I really get rolling, it might be a thousand. And then there'd be days when I just naturally finish off and I've done 12 or 14, you know, hundred words. Um, and I'm happy and that's great, but just, just, yeah, just to try and set targets that are, are mostly doable and not get discouraged with the day by days and ups and downs. Um, and just kind of, yeah, plot along. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, you had mentioned a little bit about what you're working on next. Is this what is planned for like after your release of Torch in February? Do you have this one? Um, I don't have it. I have not shown it to anyone. I have not talked to anybody about it. You know, it's not, um, I'm not planning uh, so far, anyway, I'm not planning to try and, and sell this one as a proposal. I would like to actually finish a, a good draft of the manuscript mm-hmm. before I, I try and do anything with it. I want to feel that it's solid, um, mm-hmm. and I want to I want editors and you know to to look at it and and see it as a whole thing, as opposed to well, you know, the first twenty five thousand words look pretty good, but you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, before we move on to our lightning round of questions, what are some habits, writing or otherwise, that you cultivate to be a healthy writer? Definitely for me, um, setting work hours, like 
hours that I work and hours that I don't work has been huge. When I first started writing, I would just write whenever I could. And I mean, I had small children and sometimes you've just got to do that. But there would be days when I would feel like I had done nothing but write all day and I would have a piddly amount of words to show for it. And by the end of the day, I would be so discouraged and miserable. I would hate everything I'd written and I would want to delete it. It it wasn't good. It wasn't healthy for me. Um, I was driving myself far harder than any normal boss in the working Mm -hmm. world who is not a psychopath would do. (laughs) And um, so I'm like, you know, if I wouldn't work for a boss like this, why am I being a boss like this to myself? Right. So um, I, I really decided um, it was, I think Maggie Steve Otter that, that originally brought up the idea of, you know, taking one day of a week when you don't write, I mean, a kind of writing Sabbath. And I'm like, you know, that sounds really good, <laughs> you know, cause I wasn't doing that. And, uh, so I started taking Sundays off. Um, and, um, that, that definitely helped. Um, and then I started setting because I'm at home, um, and I can do this. I don't have a job outside uh, of the home. Um, I was able to say, okay, well, I'm going to write until 4 PM every day. And then the evenings are clear and I'm not going to beat myself up if I haven't got my word count by that day, 4 PM, I'm done. Um, and just knowing that I would have times when I could just relax and read a book or, or watch Asian dramas or whatever I wanted to do, mm-hmm. um, and not feel like guilty that I wasn't writing. Mm-hmm. That was, that was huge for my mental health and just my, and, and I, and I've ended up being way more productive doing that. Um, I used to think I couldn't do that because I wouldn't get my words done, but I actually, I think I get more words written when I do that than when I don't. Awesome. I like that. Awesome. That's good advice. Being kind to yourself, right? Because for the, lo- the long haul, you've got to be yeah. like, you've got to pace yeah. yourself like a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. So true. So true. Okay. Are we ready for our lightning round? <laughs> I sure hope so. <laughs> I think we like build up the tension and it's really not I know, big of a deal. I know. Like, oh no, I'm going to be struck by lightning. <laughs> yeah. Um, what book are you reading right now? I am reading The Merciful Crow by Margaret Orwin. Turn around. I think I might have a copy somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's got really cool world building. And uh, yeah, it has a lot of really interesting themes in it. That uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. The next one is what YA book do you always recommend? I always recommend uh, Megan Whalen Turner's um, Queen's Thief series. Um, the Thief is usually considered middle grade because it won the Newbery honor. But from that point on the queen of Atolia, the king of Atolia and so on, um, it gets YA very, very fast. Um, and I just, the world building and the religion and like everything in those books is just sublime to me. The writing is just phenomenal. I love them. So awesome. 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 Okay. So we mentioned in your bio that you grew up, um, watching Doctor Who from behind the sofa. Who was your favorite doctor? Which one? I, I, my first doctor was Tom Baker, doctor number four, um, Mm -hmm. big floppy hat and scarf. Right. Um, so he was kind of like, you know, my crazy uncle that I grew up with, but I was so in love with the fifth doctor. I had such (laughs) a big crush on him, you know, blonde cricket 
cricket dude. Um, yeah. So I just, I just was like yeah, obsessed with him for a few years when I was like 12, 13, 14. Nice. Um, nice. yeah. So they were my favorite, like for my, for many years, those, they mm-hmm. were, those two were my favorites, but especially the fifth doctor who gets a bad rap. Lots of people think he's bland, but I'm like, no, he's not. Um, <laughs> but you know, of the new series, um, 11, is my favorite. He might actually be my favorite of yes. all time. Yes. Okay. I, really, I, I remember I had students that introduced me to Doctor Who and I remember watching the 10th Doctor and being like, this is it. Like, how can anybody top the 10th? I'm not going to like it after this. And then I watched the 11th. I was like, okay, no, he's like <laughs> created for this part. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's really between David Tennant and uh, yes. is it Will? What's his name? Matt Smith. Uh, Matt, Matt Smith. Smith. Matt Smith. Yeah, it's yeah. between those two for me. And I go yeah. back and forth, but I think I land yeah. on the 10th doctor just because David Tennant. But well, David Tennant is great. David he Tennant is. is great. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's David Tennant. <laughs> yeah. My issues with my issues with 10 are all script based and not David Tennant based. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I had some real problems with 10 scripts toward the end, but. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. Oh man. But then you say that, and I'm like, oh, but eleven was so good. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, okay. What is one piece of writing advice that comes to mind? Other than the ones I've given already, um, <laughs> which have been stickers. excellent. Stickers yeah. are a great productivity tool. Like if <laughs> honestly, I, I mean, you'd be surprised how motivational the idea of getting a, a shiny sticker is. <laughs> and so I have a wall calendar and if I make my word target for the day, I get a pretty sticker to put on my wall calendar. <laughs> oh, and it's amazing how hard I will work so for that fun. sticker. <laughs> like, and, and if I, if, you know, if I write 500 words, I get a small sticker, but if I write a thousand words, I get a big sticker. <laughs> And there are some days where I'm like, you know, I'm at 750. I could totally get that big sticker. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I, it's a very silly, simple trick, but I know many writers who use it. And, um, and if you're having a problem getting motivated or getting into a consistent writing habit, try stickers. Yeah. I like that. That is fun. Okay. So the last one, um, movie casts for one of your books, if you had to cast, and it could be any um, of your books. You yeah. It, it could, could be already out. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have sort of done a bit of like fan casting for some of my books, sometimes when I was making like Pinterest boards and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. But inevitably the the actors and stuff that I'm familiar with are way too old for the parts that I'm casting <laughs> them in. So I'm always like, yeah. yeah, this should be like a much younger <laughs> version of X. Um, I've never like sort of been able to come up with a full cast, but I will yeah. say that when I was doing sort of inspiration Pinterest type boards for um, Swift, the person that I found that looked most like Ivy in my head was a very young um, Annie Clark, otherwise known as St. Vincent. Um, Yeah. So like her and her like teens, um, very like dead ringer for Ivy. So great. Perfect. And speaking (laughs) speaking of Swift really quick, I don't think we asked you to do this, but can you um, briefly tell us what Swift is about? Mm -hmm. Um, It's about a... um, 17 year old, um, girl who has been born and raised in, uh, a Cornish, an abandoned Cornish tin mine. Um, and she is a Pisky, which is a kind of fairy folk, um, that, that are based in Cornwall. And, um, I chose to use the word Pisky rather than Pixie because Pixie conjures up like cute, 
tiny sparkly creatures. <laughs> um, and Ivy's people are, are not like that. Um, so I wanted to sort of evoke a little more of a serious, mm-hmm. I guess, seriousness to it. Um, so she is um, a fairy folk. So she's been born with magic and so on. But she has also been born without wings. Um, all pisky women have wings except for her she was born without them and she was also born kind of scrawny and sickly she's she doesn't measure up as far as her people are concerned and so um and she also has some tragedy in her life that her mother went mysteriously missing and everyone thinks that she was taken by their their enemies the spridgens um and uh so you know there's a, a big mystery about what happened to her mother and ivy has a lot of responsibility on her shoulders um, and she ends up meeting a very mysterious stranger who has been captured and is being held in her people's dungeon and this stranger uh, tells her that her mother is still alive and that if she helps him get out of the dungeon she will take her to see her mother Um, and so Ivy has to figure out you know, who is she going to, is she going to trust this guy? Um, or is she going to, you know, stick with what she knows? Um, and, uh, a a big twist of the story is that basically she says to this fellow, um, look, I, I, I'll go with you, but only if you teach me to fly. And so the question becomes, how does a girl with no wings learn to fly? Oh, I love Um, it. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to read it. That's going to be so fun. Awesome. Thank you. Well, before we wrap up this interview, uh, we'd like to know where people can find you online and where they can find your books. Yeah. Um, My books are available at um, all you know, most of the online book outlets, um, bookshop.org is where I send most people to support your local indie bookshops. Um, it's a good rival to Amazon if you want to support indies. Um, and of course it's on Amazon and it's on Barnes and Noble and so on. There are, um, links to all the places you can pre-order and buy the book, um, on my website, which is, um, rj-anderson.com. Yes, and we'll have that on the show notes. Mm -hmm. Great. Yes, Yes. thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's been great. Nice talking with you. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe to this podcast so that you'll be updated about new episodes. You can find us on Instagram at Exploring the Blank Page Podcast. Until next time, stay safe and get creative exploring the possibility of your blank page.